This is an ABC podcast. Today, women are demanding equal pay for equal work. But it was only 40 years ago that we were fighting for our right to work alongside men. Hi, and welcome to Steely Women, an International Women's Day week on the History Listen. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Today's story's groundbreaking events happened four decades ago at one of the country's toughest workplaces. We decided to take our case right to the front door of BHP, Australian Iron and Steel. And that was on the coldest days of the year, 3rd to the 5th of July in 1980. Tents, a tent embassy, banners and petitions presented an unfamiliar sight to steel workers at Australian Iron and Steel today. And we pitched some tents um, on a little patch of ground near Kandrilla Railway Station. To focus attention on their claims of job discrimination. We, we was on the news uh, every single night, everywhere. We had no idea that this was going to become a 14 and a half year campaign. And hopefully one day come successful. Today we go back to 1980, south of Sydney to Port Kembla. The year was a major turning point for working women. The seeds were sown for the first class action suit in our nation's history. And it was instigated by a group of blue collar women against the company known in those days as the Big Australian. I'll sing to you a story of Olivia Rosenman dips into the ABC archives and tracks down some of the women who were on those newsreels 40 years ago. In the steelworks of BHP. Today's story begins in 1980. But it was decades before that, in the 1940s, that the steelworks at Port Kembla began to dominate the Wollongong skyline. As a child, historian Eric Eklund lived close by. Port Kembla grew quite substantially in the post-war period. The BHP steelworks was employing more than 20,000 workers. The magnificent works of the Australian Iron and Steel Company have been the means of establishing a great industrial centre at Port Kembla. I think that after the war we expected to have a different world. We'd been promised a lot. We'd been promised a place fit for heroes and heroines. And really, we did expect much more than we got. But unfortunately, promises like pie crusts can be broken. It was a very Anglo community up until the late 1940s, but by the 1960s, early 70s, there were Italians, there were Germans and Poles, there were Macedonians. I'm Slovanka Jonczewska. I come in Australia in 1972 from Macedonia. Neighbourhoods that was Macedonian, as much as Italian and Croatian from Yugoslavia. Port Kembla was at the cutting edge of an ethnic diversity, which we hadn't really seen. Going home with the men, you'll hear many tongues and accents. Three in every eight of these men are new Australians. Australian immigration, they was needed workforce. From thousands of homes, from many countries, 
men of all kinds, but all one kind of man, the steel worker. But Rustina Trinesca and other migrant women were baffled by BHP's assumptions that steelwork was a man's job. Why? You know, what's, what's wrong with the woman? I was capable very much to do the job, you know. We worked very hard on the farms in Macedonia, so I wasn't scared from the job. It's Australian attitude confused me even more because say, why the women want to work? There'd been a, quite a big flow of migrants into the area. And uh, I become personally concerned about uh, migrant women in particular, because there was no jobs for them to get out and learn to mix and mingle. And this was a real cultural shock, actually. Sally Bowen got her first industrial job at a gun factory in Wollongong during the war. And when the soldiers returned and got their jobs back, the women had to look elsewhere. We felt really despondent when you saw the long queues of women waiting for jobs and felt that what future was there unless we could change the pattern of society here. If you ever went down to the 4 or 5 a.m. train, you would see hundreds and hundreds of migrant women, particularly on the train to Sydney to work. But my sister-in-law, and she was going to chicken factory early in the morning, 4 o'clock, this was a really tough time for women in work. Well, they work in Sydney, but they work for very less pay. Well, that long black train got my baby and Train, train, coming round, round the baby. But by the 1970s, there was change in the wind. On a pre-election promise, New South Wales state Labor leader, Neville Rand, said he'd bring in an anti-discrimination bill if elected. He won the 1977 election and followed through on his promise. There are three subjects which the bill covers immediately it becomes the law. They are discrimination on the grounds of race, sex and marital status. So Robin Murphy, Louise Casson and Luanne Barker were a few of the many women who immediately saw their prospects brighten. They hit the road and headed south. I originally was living in Sydney and moved down to Wollongong to get work at the steelworks. I remember coming down in the train and just seeing all the chimneys, the stacks, the smoke. It was a dirty town, a smoky town. Some people called it Steel City. It was a man's town. I put my name down in uh, employment office in BHP and I waited, waited, waited. But it seemed nothing had changed for women in Port Kembla. It was now 1980. I regularly applied for jobs at the steelworks, as did thousands of other women, and it became really obvious that you weren't going to get a job from the steelworks. They used to say there's no jobs for women. 
they didn't actually give any reasons at the time. Sometimes they said there are no facilities for ladies. I remember somebody being employed while I was there, two people actually, two men who had their telegrams in their hands and they said, oh, you know, we applied last week. Some of the women had their names down on the books for up to eight to ten years. We knew the laws had been in for at least three years and we also knew that what was happening to us was absolutely wrong and unfair. So that was the starting point. And the catalyst was a bloke behaving badly. A chicken shop owner had been sexually harassing all of the women that had come for work at his chicken shop in Crown Street in Wollongong. Luckily, one of the women had parents who were members of a union and she told them and the Working Women's Charter decided to have a public forum on sexual harassment and the lack of employment in the area for women. At that meeting, we set up an action committee to get jobs at the steelworks. We felt that unless we campaigned for equal jobs with men, we were continually going to have to put up with this dreadful situation. The next day, we lodged complaints with the Councillor for Equal Opportunity and we recognised that if we wanted to build a really big campaign that reflected the community, we had to have it in the languages of the communities. Turkish, Chilean, Greeks, Italian, pamphlets for more women to contact Robin, Diana, Louise, Loanne and all others that was protesting against the BHP. And we figured that to campaign for jobs in the steelworks, we needed to get the support of the men in the steelworks. So we had a petition and we used that to bring steelworkers on board and to tell them what we wanted to do and why we wanted jobs, but why we didn't want to take their jobs. And so the tents went up at Kringilla Railway Station, the closest commuting point to the steelworks. There were three shifts at the steelworks, so we'd be there an hour before, run up the stairs, hand out leaflets, get petitions, ask for donations. And then once the first shift went in, then about half an hour later, the next shift had come out. It was pretty hectic. We was on the news uh, every single night, Mercury paper, local papers. The women campaigners came prepared for a long vigil and for the weather. About 12 women will be staying overnight in the tents. Now BHP has told us for women there are no jobs. We'll fight the steelworks company to open up the gates. Yes, it was a very cold night. The coal miners brought coal to heat the area up. The tents were um, fairly flimsy. <laughs> there wasn't much sleep being got in any case. We'll fight the steelworks company to open up the gates. Tell me which side are you on? I was cooking them big saucepan, spaghetti bolognese. Every night that was so happy and exciting. They were hot dinner on a cold night. 
that I love that I never forget my spaghetti ball at night. We got no sleep whatsoever. It was too exciting. The response from all the steel workers was fantastic. You know, they were saying things like, oh, well, why shouldn't you? A baby could do this, I remember one of the guys said. It was so easy. We had a big sign saying, honk for support. So many more women had come because they'd heard about the tent embassy and they'd rushed to the Steelworks Employment Office, that the company actually had to close the employment office. And all the women who had been rejected for jobs came across the road and joined our campaign. BHP had never experienced anything like it, and the implications were unknown. An anti-discrimination board will be presided over by a judge or a person qualified. Premier Neville ran back in 1977. And there'll be the widest possible public inquiry and and then the board will make a report to the government. BHP quickly changed its hiring rules. I think BHP realised that we had massive support, not only in Wollongong, from the steel workers and from the unions, but right across Australia we won publicity and we got notes. Um, Australian Iron Steel started to employ women. And I think over 300 and something women were employed. Their victory was big news. Shortly afterwards, ABC Current Affairs went to visit them in their new jobs. But little did the women know the real fight was just around the corner. A young Robin Murphy. What I like is it's a bit of a challenge taking on a job as a welder and, and the reaction from everyone else at work is, oh, wow, she's, you know, she's going to go for a welding ticket. Robin Murphy today. I was given the job of a second-class welder. You know, we've always considered that as women we're rated as second-class citizens, so I thought it was funny I was employed as a second-class welder. A lot of people came up and congratulated us, particularly in the first few days when they'd heard that we'd been campaigning for jobs. Luann Barker. They made me do this job which most of the men were frightened of, which was to go to the coke ovens and climb up this huge ladder up to the top of a, a massive silo and we had to climb up and coat a few pipes with this resin. I was carrying this huge bucket of resin. So you look down and people were just little ants. The guys were saying, oh, the last person who went up there, they shat themselves and all this sort of stuff. So, but I thought, I'm not going to show it, I'm just going to do it. And so I sort of steeled myself and you know, just climbed up and did it. Two planks of wood and then a bit of a rope around. So, you know, it wasn't very safe. Louise Casson. So I started as a labourer for the test house machine shop, doing um, sweeping and filling up water in the lathes, collecting the shavings from the lathes. Then I became a third-class machinist. That involved these very large saws, hydraulic saws, cutting steel into small pieces and, well, we used to call them a truck driver, but it was just a large van that went around the steelworks collecting the samples. And that was great because I got to drive around nearly every department in the steelworks, picking up samples and meeting different people. And, and that in particular um, was a job that none of the men thought women could do. It was a, a very dirty place, you know, and literally when we went underground the coke ovens, we, we took a canary and, you know, underneath the coke ovens we, we were repairing pipes and that's where often you'd get leakage of carbon monoxide gas. And so if the levels got too high, well, you would die. So that's why we took a canary in. And I would be watching it all the time while we were working. <laughs> I was going to get out as soon as it started to wobble. 
It was a very different time. And I, I don't think maybe today people understand how different it was. It was the early 80s, and even though the women were in work, they still knew they were at the mercy of their employer. We had put in complaints initially against Australian Iron and Steel for not hiring us. When we got jobs, Australian Iron and Steel wanted us to remove the complaints, and we said, no, we wouldn't do that. We were kind of always wary, I think, what if something happened? And it did happen, and it's called retrenchment. A low day on Wall Street, the massive wave of selling was sparked off. Anyone hoping for even a brief respite from the gloom-laden headlines had better skip the front like again. every other steel producer morning, in the industrialised nations of the world, million shares BHP Steel Division is in trouble. And so the recession of the early 80s was quite a severe one. There's a real crisis in world capitalism. We had significant numbers of industrial closures and large numbers of job cuts. Most of us had been the last on. Last on, first off. Towards the end of 1980, most of the women who had complained to the Equal Opportunities Tribunal had been given jobs. But the recession hit and the steelworks began retrenching. All of the women in this case lost their jobs. They argue that if they'd been given jobs when they first applied, they would have had the seniority to have avoided the last on, first off sackings. What happened was with the retrenchments, of course, all the gains we thought we'd made were thrown out the door because most of us had been the last on. So we were the first off, the first retrenched. The Jobs for Women group, the core group of women who'd organised to get jobs at the campaign, we got complaints from the women who'd been retrenched. Then it was a matter of talking to them about would they like to join the legal campaign. But also then we're now meeting as a group of Jobs for Women, women you know, meetings of 20, 30, 40 women, and we're holding benefit concerts and dinners and, you. you know, to make money to be able to run a campaign against Australian Iron Steel. The seeds were being sown for the biggest anti-discrimination case in Australian history. Carla Gorton studied the case for her PhD thesis. The women very cleverly built a broad-based campaign. They had fundraising dinners, they had film nights, they marched in the streets of Wollongong. They went to the Trades and Labor Council and they had the discussions with the male unionists and built those links with the Migrant Resource Centre. So it was very important to have the whole Wollongong community aware of the campaign and on side. And uh, that was very important in the non-existing co community, especially in Macedonian community, to raise the voice in the community and to have support from them. It was before email and social media. I used to write a press release. We would then hand deliver it to the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian Daily Telly, all the different newspapers. You literally went and put it in, you know, the, their pigeonholes in different places. It was then after being retrenched that the women decided to take on the company before the law. 
we go around the country, in fact, talking to different workers and women's groups asking for support. I came to Brisbane to talk at International Women's Day marches. We talked at the ACTU congresses and really we were out and about. We were working with women in Newcastle who were in a similar position. It took them 14 months and five applications before they were granted legal aid. But then they were off and running. BHP's case hinged on a clause that said women could not be employed for jobs requiring lifting of more than 16 kilograms. These jobs were deemed to be weight barred. Occupational Health and Safety Officer Chloe Mason was called on to look at what was really going on on the factory floor. So the first port of call was to understand of all of the jobs in the steelworks, which ones were weight barred and therefore not available to women. The company had no idea of what specific jobs were weight barred and used the law as a tool for discrimination. The company has used the weight limit as a blanket excuse for not employing more women. So 33% of the jobs here are open to women, but only 4% of them are held by women. So, in fact, the provision wasn't really being applied anyway, and so it was really more of a legal defence to continue their practice of simply taking on more women. The Equal Opportunity Tribunal today began hearing a damages claim that for began in this room today could also set an important, indeed historic, precedent. For the first time, a group of women blue-collar workers are making a substantial claim for damages because of discrimination. Their counsel, Mr John Baston, will be attempting to claim damages for lost income between the introduction of the Anti-Discrimination Act in 1977 and their eventual employment by AIS. AIS, Australian Iron and Steel, the subsidiary of BHP. At the time, Peter Cashman was the director of PIAC, the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. This was obviously an important case. So the case involved two aspects of discrimination. First, there was the argument that they were discriminated against at the point of employment and were awarded compensation for that. They argued that there was a second act of discrimination at the point when they were retrenched. And although the retrenchment was on a neutral ground, last on first off, it was argued that that indirectly discriminated against them because at the point of hiring, they were delayed and therefore they were more likely to be retrenched. That was the issue. Well, my name's Laura Beecroft. I was a solicitor working for the Legal Aid Commission of New South Wales. What the Australian Iron and Steel BHP team said is, well, if you have a look at who was employed at the time retrenchments started to sort of take effect from, there's no disproportionate effect. We only had 10% women and only 10% women have been retrenched, so it's not disproportionate. But what the women's team said is, no, 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 you're looking at the wrong population there. What you've got to do is you've got to go back to when the women started to apply because otherwise what you're doing is looking at a population that was already unequal. So it came down to, is that indirect discrimination? Is this a rule that on the face of it looks neutral, but because of the disproportionate impact on women, it's actually indirectly discriminatory? And the reason why that's a very important question to have answered by the court is because that's the kind of discrimination that as time has gone by, is the sort of discrimination that women find most difficult 
to litigate against. After we get legal light, then the court moved to Sydney, Martin Place. Finally, in 1988, the Sydney Court of Appeal ruled in favour of the women, upholding their complaint of discrimination. But BHP wasn't giving up. The company can still lodge a further appeal with the High Court. Now the women have won, they'll be seeking compensation of more than a million dollars. The fact that the company fought against it, you know, well, that's BHP. They were going to fight against everything. In fact, I think sometimes that they thought they were above the anti-discrimination laws. The Public Interest Advocacy Centre has been fighting the women's case for the past 10 years. Solicitor Laura Beecroft. The legislation requires the women to individually go before the tribunal and prove their damages. What led to the delay was how the damages would follow. Their strategy was to drag it out as long as possible. So that's public funds. That was the campaign message, and it was very successful. Another big corporation with a PR difficulty on its plate. It's been a long, long wait, but now our patience is really running out. Today, they let a meeting of BHP shareholders know they had enough. The tribunal ruled that BHP had discriminated against all women seeking jobs as iron workers, but the company is still fighting the case. They said, people waiting long time, how many years? I want the city work, I missed the many job because He's the guarantee. Are you guarantee. married? Are you married? I'm married. I have four children. Have you got a husband? He's working. That's yeah. not fair. Despite the acrimony, the Wollongong women remain confident they'll eventually get their money. Um, in my opinion, there's clear signs that Australian Iron and Steel is not going to win this case. And the young Robin Murphy was right. Finally, in 1994, 14 years after that first Jobs for Women meeting in a community hall in Port Kembla, 709 women were awarded their compensation. Today, the financial settlement marks the end of Australia's longest-running anti-discrimination case. Um, it was a long, hard struggle. I look back and I'm so proud of what we've done. I'm very proud of what we've done. We changed a lot of things for this society and for other, other women. The women working together, listen to each other, and it wasn't easy, but together we win. When the women's liberation movement first came, I saw outrageous and excesses proved that that was very necessary to jolt the whole of society Without the real rage that went on at that period, we would have never been able to see it. It was like having the blinkers taken off when the women's liberation movement came along. Each step of the way was a hurdle. There were hurdles up against us all the time. One judge has referred to it as being as significant as the basic wage case. It's changed the face of industrial relations forever in this country. Your place in this world. You changed your place in this world. 
Steely Women was produced by Ros Blewett and Olivia Rosenman. The sound engineer was Simon Branthwaite. And thanks to all the amazing women who contributed to this program. For a full list and some great photos, past and present, head to our website on the ABC RN's History Listen page. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.